We are in Matthew chapter 1 today in our series of Christmas, The King is Coming. This morning, we want to look at the king's right to rule. We're going to look at Matthew 1 and also Luke 3.23. There we have the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you loved us. Lord, that you've given us this record, this proof that Jesus is who he says he is, and he's done all that you said he would do. He glorified your name on earth, Father, by accomplishing all the work you had him to do. And then he went back to heaven. And we're just waiting, Lord, for his return. Lord, I pray that you use the word in our hearts to give us confidence to be the lights in the darkness, to be the salt. Lord, that we might fulfill our purpose also in this life that you've given us. We'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. The king's right to rule, first of all, his lineage. Queen Elizabeth in England has been a monarch for many years, maybe the longest monarch to reign in all of England's history. You history buffs might know that, but she's ruled a long time. But you know that English people know who the next in line is, right? It's Prince Charles son but if he dies who next after that and if there was a disaster and all those that whole family somehow came to not exist that the English people would know they'd figure it out who's next in line now if you would ask a Jewish person who really has right to be ruling on the throne if there were a king in Israel they would have absolutely no idea because of the dispersion you, I, I did this experiment myself. I asked the Jewish people that were giving us tours in Israel, and their best guess is, well, they're all a tribe of Judah. Well, that's what tribe I would want to be too, since it's the ruling tribe, right? But they don't really have proof. They can't go and put their finger on a lineage someplace and say, well, this is my father, and therefore I should be the king. There's only one, and that's Jesus Christ. There's only one that has a lineage that proves he has a right to be the king. Now, you may go through these lineages and say, well, you know, that's kind of boring. You know, this guy begat this guy, and they rule a little bit. But if you knew the stories, and one day I think we'll be able in heaven, we'll know all these stories of all these people and how God preserved them especially. Now, first of all, Jesus has the right to reign because he's God, and he created it all. The Bible says in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So He has right to rule by the fact He is God, and He created it. But Satan brought sin into the world. The Bible says in Romans 5, Adam chose sin on purpose. And we read there that it's by our fathers that we get this in nature. That doesn't mean that you girls don't have it. You do. You just don't pass it on. Isn't that nice? You don't pass it on. Your husbands do. We got our sin nature from our father, and that goes all the way back to Adam. What's the proof? Everybody sins. Everybody dies. You don't have to learn how to sin. That's just what you do. The Bible says we go away from our mother's womb speaking lies. It's our nature. We got that from Adam. But God had a plan. 
From eternity past, God knew man would choose sin. And he had a plan. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, after Adam chose sin, death began to pass. He said to Adam, one day, a woman is going to bring forth the seed, going to bring forth a child, and that child will crush the head of the serpent, even though that serpent will crush or will bruise his heel. And that's fulfilled at the cross with Jesus Christ. Satan was defeated. When Jesus died, his last words were victory. It is finished. All the work for your salvation was not accomplished in the resurrection. That was just the exclamation point. He finished that work at the cross when he became payment for our sins. And he redeemed back what was already his by creation. He redeemed it back to God by his own blood. So God had a special child in mind. And then he chose a nation. He made a nation. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 5, he takes Abraham, called the father of many, Abram, and he shows him all the stars. And he says to Abram, now look toward the heavens and count the stars. If you're able to count them, so shall your descendants be. Abram believed God, and God counted it for righteousness. So he becomes the father, even though he had no children. There's a miraculous birth there where God returned and gave strength to his body and his wife Sarah's body. They could bring forth one child, Isaac. One child. And then Isaac had two sons, and God chose the younger one of them, Jacob. And he had 12 sons, and that's the 12 tribes of Israel. God brought forth a nation. Now, if you get the opportunity to go to Israel, one thing that Dr. Bookman will tell you, he makes a big deal about, is the geography of Israel. He made this little nation with an interior that's just really rough and it's hard to travel on. But he put a big highway that just goes down the outside, down to Egypt. So all the world could come by and hear about this great God that protects Israel and provides for her and gave them this wonderful religion. But instead of using that to tell and reflect the gospel, the good news that God is a great God and there's only one God, they turned that and began to say, well, God chose us because we're better. The proof, every time they they failed in their mission, they they didn't want to share the good news with anybody else. Remember Jonah? Pastor Nelson just went through the book of Jonah. Here's Jonah was sent to a wicked people And he even said later, I knew you'd forgive him. I knew you'd bring a revival. He sends Jonah up there, and Jonah gets in the boat, goes the other way. God had to swallow him with a fish and puke him up in the land and say, now go do what I told you to do. And I don't know what enthusiasm he brought, but it seemed like it kind of went through town. Well, God's going to destroy Nineveh, and he went through the town. And the whole nation, because of God's spirit, repented. And Jonah got mad. Why? Because he was a typical Israeli. I knew you were forgiving God. I knew you were merciful. I knew you'd forgive them. And God said, I can't believe you, Jonah. That was the heart of Israel. So when Paul brought the message that the Messiah had come, he would always go to a new city in a Gentile city. He'd go to a synagogue. If it wasn't big enough for a synagogue, he'd go to a place of prayer. And he'd share the news that the Messiah, the king, had come. And oh, they were so happy to hear it. Oh, tell us more about that, Paul, till he get to the part that he's also the Savior of the world. And then 
They'd cause a riot. They'd stone him. They'd beat him. They'd send him out of town. They did not want to hear that. They were rebellious. They thought God just came for them. In fact, they were so lost when Jesus came. You think they would be so excited about it. No, they were satisfied with themselves. They just wanted Rome to go away. They thought they had this self-rule down. And when the Magi came from the east, the kingmakers, and they came to Herod and they said, well, we've seen a star. We've seen this constellation. We know that a king is supposed to be born. But where is he supposed to be born? Where's the king of Israel? They thought Jerusalem. That's why they went there. The Bible says that all of Israel, all of Jerusalem was troubled with Herod. That really bothered Herod because he was Edomian. He wanted to be known as the king of the Jews, but he was not Jewish. He was very jealous and very wicked. Now you would think if the Messiah is going to be born, you're really looking for the Messiah, that when that little information of the consolation that these kings of the east, these magi, these kingmakers from the east had come, that that would really twist up a lot of uh, you know, uh, theory. And then people say, oh, well, let's get back to the Bible. Where, where is he supposed to be born? They just said, well, the priest, they called the priest, and Herod called the priest, and well, down in Bethlehem. And so they go down to Bethlehem, and that's the last you hear about it. Nobody even goes to check it out except for those Gentile kingmakers, the Magi. They go down there, and of course, Herod, Herod said, you know, if, if you hear uh, where he's, I want to worship too, so just come back and tell me, and then I'll go down and worship, because he was going to wipe out that little boy. No one threatened his throne. But God warned the Magi, and they went back another way, and then God warned Joseph, so he took his child, his, 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 his wife and his child down into Egypt, fulfilling another scripture that out of Egypt I've called my son and he protects the young Messiah by taking him down to Egypt. Now, I don't know if Mary and Joseph understood that they were in the line of kings. I think they knew their family. They're of the house and lineage of David, so they knew that much. Whether they knew they were actually chosen and that they were so specially in that line, we don't know that. And if, even if they did know it, they weren't going to go around and advertise that because Herod would have them executed in a heartbeat. They don't want no problem. Rome wants no problem with upstart kings. And so even if they knew that, they would have kept it to themselves. Now, what we see here is just really neat. If you could see all these stories, you'd see the grace of God. But one thing that's really interesting is in Matthew chapter 1, what you see, it's interesting to me, I don't know if it's interesting to you. In Matthew chapter 1, you have the genealogy or the right to the throne through Joseph. Now, everyone just supposed that Jesus was Joseph's son, even though we know he was the son of God and, not, and the son of Mary, not the son of Joseph and Mary. But he was treated like a son. Joseph raised him as a son. And so through Joseph, you get the right to the throne, the legal right to the throne. Now, what's interesting to me about that is you get down to the last one that actually sat upon the throne. His name is Jeconiah. Look in verse 11. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation into Babylon. So they keep having children, but nobody else is going to sit on that Jewish throne. But Jeconiah, and there were some wicked kings in Israel. One king was so wicked that he shut the doors of the temple and set up worship, broke up the laver and broke, broke and, and sent it up for a gift for the king of Assyria. And then he went up and they had a model of, of the gods and the great worship they had in Assyria and brought those down, had the priest 
of God make those false worship, and they only had pagan worship on the Temple Mount. And yet God in his grace allowed him to go on. But he says about this Jeconiah in Jeremiah twenty-two thirty, this guy, nobody from his line will sit on the throne of David, nobody. So here we have the legal right to the throne, but a problem. And you might think, well, God, he, he kind of messed up there because how is he going to do that? How is he going to have nobody sit on the throne yet Jesus has a legal right to sit on the throne? Well, God's not done. He brought two perfect people together. And Mary also has the blood right to sit on the throne through another of David's sons. Now, if you look in the book of Luke, beginning of verse 23, you have the beginning of another genealogy, and that is Mary's genealogy. And it goes all the way back to David. Now, David had more, he had many sons. He had multiple wives. But God chose Solomon, the son of Bathsheba, but Bathsheba had another son named Nathan. And the only time he's mentioned, Nathan never sits in the throne. All these people that are listed, none of them sat on the throne. And yet they're in the bloodline. God orchestrates to keep this line going. They're in the bloodline because that's the line, the bloodline through which he's going to bring Jesus. And Jesus will sit on the throne. So here's what's interesting to me. The last one to actually sit on the throne before Jesus sits on that throne again is David in that line. Solomon's brother's name is Nathan. We just don't hear much about him. Now, it wasn't always the, the oldest. We know that nor, if there's a family and there's boys, normally the oldest son sits on the throne. Solomon was not the oldest, but David was a man after God's own heart. And though he had a lot of sin, he always repented when it was pointed out. And when God said, no, I want I to want show my grace, I'm going to take the woman that you sinned with and killed her husband, and then he took the, God took the first child to be with him, and then the next child she had was Solomon, and he said, I'm going to choose Solomon to be the next king. But through Solomon's reign came so much wickedness. So you have the legal right to the throne. Then here in Luke, you have Mary's line, and you have Jesus' bloodline to the throne. So Jesus has a right to sit on that throne. He's the next one that's going to sit on that throne of Israel. Not only does he have the right by his lineage, but he has right by his ministry, the words and the works that Jesus did. He fulfilled all the prophecy of the Old Testament. You, you, and again, you think the people that, there's, there are people in every age that are cons conspiracy theorists, right? We love a good conspiracy. Who really shot John Kennedy, right? And we still, you know, we have all these ideas and things happen. Elvis is really still alive, living in California someplace. We have, our minds just like that. But it's certainly the people of Israel, they didn't check his lineage out. In fact, later they say, well, pfft, what prophet arises out of Nazareth? Well, he wasn't born in Nazareth. He grew up there. He was born in Bethlehem where the king was supposed to come from, the line of David. Now, many kings are removed from their people. So they only do what's good for themselves. One of the worst examples, I think, of king and queen were Louis XVI and his wife, Marie Antoinette, they were awful. They were just awful. If you know the history, the people were begging for bread outside and they were living like pampered poodles. They couldn't hardly do anything for themselves. I visited the palace there in Versailles and it's, Versailles, it's so opulent, it's just gross. 
And it shows how untouched they were by their own people. Their people are starving. They're living this life of just amazing opulence, gold everywhere. They even had their own little place to worship so they didn't have to mix with the common man. And when the people lacked bread and Marie Antoinette was told that the people don't have no bread to eat, she said, let them eat cake. And later the crowd dealt with them, didn't they? Great, terrible, bloody revolution because they were not touched with the life of their people, but that's not our Savior. In Philippians chapter 2, the Bible says, even though he was God, he did not see his Godness something he had to grasp after, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. This king was born in the lowliest place. He was born in a manger. And he grew up and became a craftsman like his father, probably a stonemason and a carpenter and a builder. Worked with his hands. Was poor like all of his people so that we might come to him and understand that he understands us. Hebrews chapter 4, 15 says, We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. You may think, oh, well, he was God, so he just doesn't understand. No, no. He was tempted in all points we are, yet without sin. And because of that, because he lived where we lived, he suffered what you suffered. He was tempted and tested like you are tested, except for he didn't sin. Therefore, because of that, you can come boldly to the throne of grace and find help in time of need. He's a savior. He's a king that understands. He understands. He knows his people. He became obedient to the, to the death on the cross because he had to take our place. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he became sin. Who knew no sin? He took our guilt upon him. Who knew no sin? that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. He understands. He fulfilled everything the scripture said he would. He identified with his people. Then he took the sin of his people on himself and died for us for all the sins of the world. So he has a right to the cross by his lineage, by his work as a king, and thirdly, by his victory at the cross. In John 17, 4, Jesus said to the Father in his high priestly prayer, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, we have that great song when all the saints are gathered there in that great stadium of worship. And remember, we talked about it last week. Jesus comes to take the title deed to the throne of the earth. And a search is done. Who's worthy to sit on the throne? Who's worthy to rule? And Jesus steps out. And we and the angels and the saints of the ages sing, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals. You are worthy to rule, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. He has a right to rule because of his victory at the cross. When he died, he said, It is 
finished. And then three days later, he rose from the grave just like he said he would. He conquered death. He conquered sin. And he has the right to rule in every man's life. You see, his death and resurrection makes every man guilty before God. The Bible says that in Romans 3, that all the world will become guilty. You individually are guilty of the death of Jesus Christ. You say, well, I wasn't alive then. No, no. In Adam, you sinned, but in Christ, you can be made alive. Because he died for you, he gives that opportunity for every individual to turn to him. And if you reject the gospel, there is nothing else God's going to do. There's a warning there in Hebrews. It says, if we trample underfoot the blood of Christ and count it as a common thing, there remains no more sacrifice. There's nothing else God's going to do. He's given his only begotten son, the very best, the king of kings, came, Revelation 1.5, and he washed you from your sins in his own blood. Every believer that trusts him understood that guilt and recognized we were lost, recognized the only one that could save us and received him as the payment for your sin. But he has the right to rule in every heart, but not only does he have the right to rule by the victory of his cross, but he has the right to rule by his victory that's coming at Armageddon. In Isaiah chapter 13, verse 6, there's a prophecy of what's going to happen in that final battle. By this time, the nation of Israel will have recognized. That's what the tribulation is all about. Those seven years are all about the nation of Israel recognizing they missed the Messiah. Isaiah 53 is a prophecy of the nation of Israel and their lament when they recognize they missed the Messiah and they turn to him in faith. And when the Antichrist says, no, no, you worship me, they react. Remember, Jesus warns them in Matthew 24 and 25 when he talks about his return. He said, when you hear the abomination of desolation, when the Antichrist steps in and says, worship me, then just leave town. Get out of town because he's going to turn, the Antichrist is going to turn on God's people and try to destroy them. Well, in the end, he's going to bring all the arms of the earth down to the valley of, of Armageddon. And they're there to destroy Israel. They want to destroy him. During this time, all the devastation that's been poured on the earth, they know it's God. They don't submit to him. The world does not submit to him, even though... It's going to be a great time of harvest. Some from every tribe, tongue, nation, people group are going to come to know Jesus during those days. Still, so many will still reject him. And instead of turning, they, they know who he is. They know he's God, but they still think they can win. So God allows them to be gathered there on the plain of Armageddon. And they're there to destroy Israel. And all of a sudden, he appears in the sky. And all the generals say, turn your weapons on Jesus. We'll have our day today. We will destroy. You see all these space, modern movies about, you know, man is just able to overcome alien invasion, you know, a big meteorites come and destroy the earth and we send somebody up to land a plane or something on it and we blow it up and we save ourselves. Man can always save himself. And they think the same thing. And yet in Isaiah 13, we see what's going to happen. It says, wail for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. 
Therefore, all hands will fall limp and every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. If you're going through that kind of pain, you're not able to fight. Then it says, they will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate sinners from it. Every unbeliever around the world is going to be taken to judgment. How? By his words. If you look at Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11, It says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following on white horses. Hey, we're going to be there but we will never lift a sword. You know why? When all the armies that are gathered there turn their weapons on Jesus, he just says the word and they die. See, Jesus spoke the worlds into existence. He can speak sinners out of it. And they melt before him. It says, on his robe and on his thigh has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come assemble for the great supper of God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assemble to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized... With him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, which he deceived by those who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. The rest were killed with the sword, which comes from the mouth of him who sit on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. He just speaks the word. No weapon will succeed against God. That's why Jesus said, as believers... I call you no longer servants but my friends. And as my friends, I tell you the things that are going to happen. So that we don't have to be, as he wrote to the Ephesians, Paul wrote to the Ephesians, we don't have to be in darkness like the rest of the world. We, no man knows the day or the hour, but we can see the signs of the times. And what's the motivation, Jesus said? Get to work. First of all, don't be discouraged. Things are going to wax worse and worse at the end, but lift up your hedge. Your redemption draws nigh. Work while the night is coming. Because when the night comes, when it's over, you don't have the opportunity. We have this opportunity in our time and our place to be found faithful. God has saved you on purpose. He has gifted you for a purpose. And he has given you the Holy Spirit that you might accomplish that purpose. That one day you might hear from the King of Kings. Well done. Well done. But while you might agree that he has a right to rule... Because God has chosen a child and a nation and a throne and he sent him through that lineage and he took our place in the cross and he has a right to rule by that victory at Calvary and he has a right to rule by the victory he's going to have at Armageddon. The question is, does he rule in your life? Psalm 32.8 says, Don't be like the horse or like the mule that needs a whip and a bridle. 
or he'll just walk all over the top of you. There are some believers that, that live that God has to always keep a tight rein on them, and they're always fighting the bit. He goes on to say, I would guide you with mine eye upon you. See, if the king rules in your heart, he doesn't have a hard time directing you. I would guide you with mine eye upon you. When I was a little guy growing up, my, my dad could direct me with his eye. And if he didn't have attention with his eye, he'd snap his finger. And man, he just, boom, that place would just rattle. And I would go, oh, because I knew what could come after if I didn't listen to my dad. And so my dad could guide me with his eye upon me. And when he got my attention, okay, dad, what do you want now? Got to have your attention that way, believer. We live in a world that says, no, be politically correct. Just be quiet. Jesus said, if you're not willing to be salt and you have no saltiness in your testimony, you're good for nothing but road base. We live in a culture of Christians that we've had so much handed to us that we like to live incognito, camouflaged. I hear Christians say all the time, well, you know, I'm a coach or I'm a teacher or I'm this or I'm that. And so I really can't, I really can't share the gospel, you know. No, you can. You just don't want to. And I'm not saying you need to pull a soapbox out and go through the whole doctrine of salvation found in the first 11, 12 chapters of Romans. But are you available to sow some seed when God tells you to sow some seed, to bring some water of God's grace when he just wants you to water? You see, you can't save anybody anyway. But he wants us to be salt in this world. He wants us to be light. He did not save you to be a candlestick to put you under a bushel because he was confused about the times he was going to call you in. Mm -mm. He saved you and gifted you to be a light so he could put you out up on top. A city set on the hill cannot be hidden. That's what he wants you to be. Available. Available. We as believers sometimes like to sit in judgment of the world because they're so wicked, but are we submissive to the will of the king? Father, we thank you for your love for us. Lord, I pray that we would live unashamed of the King, unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, sensitive to opportunity, especially during this Christmas season, to be able and excited to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, we ask for a harvest of souls this next year. People, as we look at them, we see no possibility, but you are the God of impossibility. Lord, use us to bring those lost ones to you, those ones you've set your affection on. Lord, give us sensitive hearts so we can be a part of what you're doing in our place, in our time, and we'll give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.